Section 8 of The Moon Master by Charles Diffin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 8 He examined again the knife and the automatic, and counted the cartridges left in the magazine. There were more he had found in a pocket of his coat, enough to replace those he had fired. He slipped the pistol into its holster at the sound of soft footsteps approaching. It was Marahana who entered, a strange and barbaric Marahana. She was clad in a garment of spun gold that enveloped her tall figure. It trailed in rippling beauty on the floor, draped in resplendence her slim body to end in soft folds about a headdress that left Jerry breathless. Her face was entirely concealed. The gold helmet covered her head. It was tall, made entirely of hammered gold, in which spirals of jewels reflected their colors of glittering light. She was quite unrecognizable in the weird magnificence. Only her voice identified the figure. She murmured chokingly some soft words, then raised her head with its barbaric helmet proudly high as she concluded. There were words become familiar now to Jerry. Together with the spectacle she presented, her meaning was more than plain. The time has come, she was telling him, the sun, the hour of sacrifice. Jerry leaped to his feet. His plans for battle were being revised. An idea, a plan, half-formed, was beating in his brain. The sound was beating upon him, too. There were drums that throbbed in steady unison, that echoed hollowly along resounding walls, that approached in loudly increasing cadence. The plan was complete. No, said Jerry Foster with a wild laugh. He reached to remove the golden helmet. He placed it upon his own head under the startled gaze of the wandering girl. He reached out for the robe. You shall not go, he told her. I will go in your place. And when I reach that room, his eyes were savage behind the slits in the golden headdress. No, no, the girl protested. Her face showed plainly the complete hopelessness of what Jerry proposed. To pit himself against that antagonist, she knew how futile was the brave gesture. Jerry was undaunted. I've got to die anyway, he tried to explain and if I can get in one good crack at whatever is there, well, I may be of help. His hand was taking off the cloak. Marahana's eyes were steady upon him. She ceased to resist. She whipped one of the covers from the couch about her and helped him with the golden robe. The throbbing of drums was hammering at Jerry's temples. They were close at hand. Marahana, without a word, rushed frantically back toward the room where the others waited. And again Jerry Foster felt that odd tightening of disappointment about his heart. But what was the difference, he told himself, in a hundred years or a hundred minutes? He set his lips tight and walked slowly out and down the passage. The room he entered was deathly quiet. There were figures standing about, Figures robed in their gold-threaded drapes that stared strangely, wonderingly at him, and drew themselves into a huddled group against the wall. 
and two there were who stood apart, the other victims, their sacrificial garments wrapped them round where they waited for the third, who was to accompany them. Jerry joined them as a guard came in from the outer hall. The drums were rolling softly in their rhythmic beat. Priests who entered showed annoyance at the delay. They gave a curt order and motioned the three to follow. Outside the corridor was broad, and the double rows of lights on either side glowed brightly to illumine a pageant grotesque and terrible in its barbaric splendor. The drums throbbed louder. Jerry saw them in their fire of burnished metal, beaten by bands of naked men. Beyond, a group of warriors waited. Stalwart and strongly muscled, they stood erect in copper armor beside a platform of metal bars whose floor was of latticed gold. The victims were placed upon it to stand erect. Jerry balanced himself upon the golden floor as the warriors raised it slowly to their shoulders. Priests in robes of heavy gold rope were ranged about. They formed the guard, an escort ten deep, about the living sacrifice. At that, the drums increased their volume, and to this was added a nerve-wracking, discordant, and rapsing jangle, when sheets of copper, paper-thin, were struck with a heavy hand. The pulsing, throbbing pandemonium was terrific as the march began. Slowly they made their way through a winding gallery. Slowly they came to where a portal, high-arched, gave entrance upon the great hall. Solemnly, proudly, the priests led the way as they circled the vast room. Their wrappings of gold were a scintillant quiver of light. Above each hard face a circle of gold, symbol of the sun, was borne imperiously high. The priestly guards surrounded the platform, where the three standing figures were huddled, and behind and on either side the men with the drums and the discordant ringing sheets gave full force to their blows. The high vault above thundered and roared to the thunder and roar of the drums, and high over all a wailing began. The thin shrillness beat with the tempo of the drums in a pitch that steadily descended. The glittering procession had come to rest at its appointed place in the pathway, of light as the wailing came down to a moan. Oh, Ong, oh, Ong, the voices groaned, while the walls re-echoed the despairing tones. Only from the band of warriors did the ear of Jerry Foster detect anything but misery and despair. The priests were silent, but the warriors, in their shining armor, stood erect and roared out the syllables in exultant joy. The priests were now upon the dais, the rocky platform, divided by the great glowing parabola of light. They stood erect as a new high priest, replacing the one Jerry had killed, crossed to bow and grovel in the radiance from their god. The room was silent, with the silence of a great tomb as the march of death began. Softly from the silence, the drums resumed the merest whisper of their former thunderous booming. Beside him, Jerry heard the soft sobs of a girl. One of the figures swayed and threatened to fall 
as the platform was lowered to rest upon the floor. The other pressed close to support the drooping figure. Now the entire directed ray of light from the round, glowing hole struck full upon them. It blinded and dazzled, yet plain and distant. Jerry saw at its heart the circle of blackness, the eye of the mysterious, hypnotic parabola, the entrance to what lay beyond. The beat of the drums was hypnotic, as if in a trance he saw, at the side of the way they must go, the form of the head priest beckoned them on. The two victims at his side took one step on the path to their death, and the same stiff rigidity held Jerry as he, too, moved onward and up the golden ramp. The drums were bearing them on. Louder they throbbed in a steady crescendo to carry the three rigid figures a step at a time up the pathway of light. The priest, Jerry felt more than saw, was beside them. Close ahead was the blackness that held the set stare of his eyes. One of the golden figures was before him. He saw the priest reach out to take the helmet from her head. The movement aroused him from his numb horror. An impulse to escape surged through him. Every nerve was tense and ready for a spring. He looked quickly about. The warriors were behind, the priests ready on their platform to direct them. And in the doorway, from where he had first seen this chamber, on the only way he knew that led to freedom, another figure, tall in its priestly robes, blocked the passage. Hopeless, he knew, and then there swept through him a wave of hate. Gone was his horror, and gone the dull deadness of brain and body. There facing him was the mouth of the pit, where waiting a something horrible, rapacious, demanding the lives of these people, of Marahana, of others more and yet more. No thought of life or escape. For the moment, Jerry Foster's whole being held nothing but hot hate and the wish for revenge. Before him the priest was stripping the robe from the girl at his feet. She stood like a statue, a carving of purest alabaster, slim and erect in her white, slender nakedness. And the face that he saw through incredulous eyes was that of Marahana. Marahana, the realization and quick understanding, held him spellbound. She had come, had taken the robes from another poor victim, to be with him in this, the last hour. Marharana, a princess among these strange folk, was giving her life when another could have been in her place. And she smiled tremulously, bravely, as her eyes locked with his, as, speechless and spellbound, he stared through the eyelets of gold. The priest was reaching for his headdress. Jerry tensed. The moment had come. He was ready. As the weight left his shoulders, he dropped, with one swift movement, his golden disguise. The robe fell in folds at his feet. He stared in silence, through narrowing eyes, at the face of the head priest above him. Then, leaping straight up, he fastened one hand, sinewy, sun-browned and strong, on the white neck below the white face. They crashed back 
to land on the ramp and roll, struggling toward the edge. Jerry's hold never slackened. He felt his fingers sink deep in the flesh. He came to his knees, then up, to hold the writhing figure at arm's length. Then, heaving with all his strength, he whipped the man into the air to drag him in one leaping bound for the sheltering darkness beyond. The figure was entering with him, a slim, naked figure with glowing and worshipping eyes. Behind them, the silence was shattered. Jerry saw, as he stepped from the light, the riot of figures that surged in hysterical frenzy through the great hall. The priests were leaping among them. The tall priest, who had guarded the door, was fighting his way through the mob. Jerry loosed his quivering hand from the throat it held. He cast the figure from him. He blinked his eyes to make them serve him in the blackness all about. Beside him a form, invisible in the dark, was stroking at his face, and a voice was whispering tremulously, Cherry, Cherry. The tumult in the great hall reached them but faintly. Jerry Foster strove desperately to focus his eyes in the darkness of utter night. The dim glow from the portal crept softly in to bring faint illumination to the farther wall. Slowly his eyes found that which they feared yet sought. Off in the dark, directly opposite the entrance, was a white and ghostly thing, formless and vague. It wavered and blurred to his straining eyes. He fumbled clumsily for a match, one of his treasured store. He must see, he must know what was waiting. The match flared to a point of brilliance in the murky gloom. It showed on the floor where they stood a litter of dried vegetation, food, doubtless, placed there as an offering. It was dry now and dusty, and through it there shone the bleak whiteness of bones. Beyond was the floor, and beyond that, the whiteness that had been but a blur grew sharply distinct. Jerry could not have told what he expected the light to disclose. Certainly it was not the heaping of coils, milk-white and ghastly, that took shape before his staring eyes. Above them a head hung in the air. It was motionless, lifeless, almost, like the coiled body that held it. But the eyes, black and staring, in the bloated, bulging head, made its poised stillness the more deadly. Even in the dark, Jerry had sensed the hypnotic spell of unseen eyes. Visible, they held him in a rigid, unreasoning terror. Unreal, unthinkable, this serpent-like horror, tremendous and ghastly in its loathsome whiteness. A dweller in the dark, used by the priests as a symbol and a threat for the ignorant folk who trusted and believed them. And it held him, stilled and stricken in its evil spell. End of Part 8